HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We've been making cheese in Wisconsin since before we were even a state, which may be one reason why we win so many awards for it. It's what happens when a whole state dreams in cheese. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. We talk about food. We talk about music with musical dudes. Finger on the pulse, snacky tunes. Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm your host, Darren Bresnitz. We are so excited to be sitting down with Natalie Webb, the founder and executive director of Cafe Cita Coffee, her women-owned roastery, who works with women-owned coffee farms and women farmers from all around the world. She talks to us about her global adventures, her work as a human rights advocate, and her eventual move into the coffee importing business. And then we dig deep into the archives for a musical performance from Beshkin, who comes to us with some indie rock, jazz, electronic, what we think is a pretty perfect coffee shop music. When he came to us, in the shipping containers all the way back in 2018. So please sit back, relax, and enjoy Snacky Tunes here on Heritage Radio Network. Thank you. 
Natalie, welcome to Snacky Tunes. Thanks for making the time and for sending us some of the coffee. It's yes, absolutely. Happy I mean, to like, <laughs> I'm not going to bury the lead. I started this morning with a cup of the Marcala. Yes. Am I saying that right? Yes, perfect. And uh, the day has been smooth. I mean, it is 
you know, you get samples or people reach out to you and you're like, okay, sure. No problem. And then I has coffee and I was like, she's coming on the show. About <laughs> the coffee, uh, But it's absolutely delicious. Awesome. I'm so happy to hear that. Um, now look, uh, we're going to get to coffee in a little bit. I want to go back a little bit. Um, I know your brother, Chris, which is how we met. Shout out to Chris and Chow Now. Um, you're born and raised in LA. And I feel like my coffee is like a, fa- a coffee family. I have like a family that drinks coffee. I drink coffee, things like that. Some aren't. Was your family coffee drinkers growing up or did you come to that later in life? We actually, I, just, I don't have a coffee family at all. My mom's British. <laughs> so like we uh, were very yeah. much a drinking uh, family. I like coffee. My brother likes coffee. Um, my dad liked coffee. So it wasn't completely foreign to us, but I would say we weren't like a strong coffee drinking family growing up. Um, no, I, I, I mean, the mom is British tea is yeah. going to be prevalent. Um, you know, we, we get a lot of bios and when someone mentions in their bio that they left home at 18, um, which a lot of us did, but it doesn't always make it into the bio. I always find that is like a big turning point in someone's in life. Um, and look, LA is pretty global. You know, you can sort of get to any sort of culture in the city, but what, what made you want to go see the world? What took you out, out of California? I think because my mom was British. Mm. I'm a, so we used to go visit family in London. Uh, and when we would visit them, we would go travel like somewhere else in Western Europe since we were out there. So I think having that experience growing up, just kind of having it so normalized, like getting on a plane, going to other cultures, seeing how other people live, it really sparked that curiosity for me. So that's why when I was 18, I was, I was set. I wanted to go out. I uh, wanted to use the fact that I had the dual citizenship. So I went and worked in London for a bartender Mm. for like six months, raised money and then started traveling and then just got completely hooked on it. So obviously London is another type of multicultural city and a different one that's pulling from more of like East Asia and Africa and other parts of the world where LA is more like Latin America, South America. What, what did you discover or what cultures drew you once you got out of the US and into London? Is that what started you on your journey around the world of just seeing like I'm going to go here. I'm going to go there because it was easy for you to move around. Yeah, it. I wouldn't say that it was anything particular to London. It was more just the, just the traveling because it's it started with London because that felt you know so familiar. Like had family there, I could stay with all of that. Um, but then it like branched out to I was in Spain for a little bit. Mm. I was in Holland, and then I decided. I wanted to go to Eastern Europe and this was before the EU was a long time ago. So like oh, yeah. backpacking in Eastern Europe and yeah, it, it, it was like, I just wanted to see the world after that. So then when I came back and I went to school, I did or university, I did two study abroads, one in Singapore and one in Ghana. So it, it wasn't like one particular area of the world I wanted to see. I just wanted to see all of it. Now I remember my, college travels during that time was a lot of like you know cheaper food a lot of stuff because I wasn't really eating fancy that back then yeah um 
what were you eating back then? What were you seeing in the world? When did you start to see how maybe the agriculture tied into the economy and how it affected people since you were out in different parts of the globe? Because here in America, it's like, it's pretty separated. It's like you just go to the grocery store and things are packaged. But in other parts of the world, it's a little bit more on display. Yeah. So that's such a big question. I have so many answers to it. You have all the time. Take all the time you need. Um, I would say Singapore. Have you been in Singapore? I haven't yet. I've, oh, I've uh, Vietnam is the closest part of the world I've gotten over there. So yeah, Singapore, just the food, it's such a big part of the culture mm-hmm. there. So mm-hmm. That was great in its own way. As far as I think more seeing where food is grown and mm-hmm. getting into coffee, um, it, it was a, a journey, I'd say. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. When I was in Ghana, I, this is going to sound like a long story. I'm going to try to make this as short as possible. But um, when I was in Ghana, I got really into the gold mining industry mm. <laughs> because it had been the Gold Coast and that's what a lot of the economy was based on. And I really saw that um, really it was foreign corporations that were um, not following any of the labor or environmental laws and how it was affecting the country. And so decided to go to law school and became a human rights lawyer. And then when I was working as a human rights lawyer, I lived abroad a lot again. And that's when I think I was, that's when I was seeing more of how food was grown, agriculture was grown, kind of the world economy as well. So um, yeah, it just, that's what sparked my my interest in it. It was when I was living in Mexico that I got really into cafe culture and mm. just the coffee. You know, bringing up the gold or minerals or precious metals economy and also saying coffee in the same breath might seem like it's <laughs> two worlds apart, but they're so similar in do that. <laughs> I mean, they're foreign corporations coming to other countries and a lot of the people who are doing the hard labor, there are without naming names, but you know, there are some you know, a lot of human rights issues and a lot of inequity and things like that. Exactly. Uh, but making that jump from looking at the Gold Coast to looking at the agriculture <laughs> is, as possible. No, 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 I get that. But but take me a little bit on that journey because you were a human rights attorney. It wasn't like you just were like, oh, I see these inequities and here's a white paper on it and you know, maybe a couple of Instagram posts. Like you went to bat for these people. When yeah. did you start wanting to get involved with all these people who were not benefiting for the global trade? Um, well, so when I was doing human rights work, it was, that's all the work I did. I always worked for nonprofits. I was Mm -hmm. always doing human rights work. Um, and then I just, I realized along the way that I wanted to start my own thing. And it took a long time to figure out what that thing Mm -hmm. would be. A lot of us, I think, want to do that, but it's really hard to figure out what your passion is, what, what you're passionate about, but then also what you want to turn into a business because there's some things you don't necessarily want to do that. You want to kind of keep it as like your hobby. Yeah. Your your fun thing. Yeah. So it, it was hard and it took a long time for me to kind of narrow in on coffee. And there were so many influences along the way. And the original idea was to be a cafe and that was 
because I'd worked abroad so much, I worked from cafes. I saw how universally loved coffee is. Mm -hmm. I had seen the gender inequality that was happening within the coffee industry. Um, But I also loved that cafes all around the world had their similarities and their differences, but they also always created community wherever they Mm -hmm. were. Mm -hmm. I just love that. So um, got really inspired to open a cafe and I'm trying to think, I'm trying to make this as linear as as possible, even though it really wasn't like a linear journey at all. um, No path is though, right? (laughs) (laughs) So I had thought it was going to be a nonprofit because that was my whole background. Mm -hmm. And then, um, was really inspired. I was living in Oaxaca, Mexico, to actually have a social enterprise where the business side was sustained the nonprofit side. And then because I'd seen the gender inequality that was happening in the coffee industry, but also saw that there were these amazing women-owned farms that were producing incredible coffees that weren't getting the attention that they deserved, it kind of all came together for me to create Cafecita. But it was 2020, which is not the best time to be opening a cafe, so quickly pivoted to being a coffee company. Mm. But very excited that we actually will be opening our first physical location next month. Ooh, PC yeah. where? In Glassell Park. Oh, right down the street from me. Now, before we head to break, can you paint a little bit of a picture of how the how coffee works as from farm to getting into my house because I think when we get into the next part about the business of it and why you're calling out specific farmers and and how different farms are treated it's going to help to understand like how it actually works sure so that's also a very big uh question but I only big questions here only big questions <laughs> um so the short version of it is that in like at origin on the coffee farms um you'll have most of the time it will be like families will have their own land that they're growing mm-hmm. the coffee mm-hmm. and then they'll bring it to kind of um, a centralized organization, a pr- producer group. That's one way of doing it. Sometimes it's a co-op. Sometimes it's one big farm. So there's a variety of kind of setups for the coffee to come. Um, goes through a lot of quality control processing and then goes through also some other processes to get shipped out. Most of the time in the U.S., there's importers that have the relationships with the farms already established. Mm-hmm. So they're buying that coffee every year after. they. A lot of times, depending on the importer, they'll also have people on the ground doing quality control. They'll import the coffee into the U.S. And then the roasters in the U.S. have the relationships with the importers who then... Mm-hmm samples and you see what works for you. Cafecita has a set menu. And so right now we have coffee from Honduras and Rwanda. Um, and the coffee from Honduras is through Sustainable Harvest, which is an importer that I've been using since launching Cafecita. I'm, I feel great with them, super aligned our missions. You can tell like even in their name, Sustainable Harvest, mm-hmm, that's mm-hmm. what they're all about. They're based in Portland. And so they've been working with this producer group, which is this awesome uh, women's co-op in Southwest Honduras since like the 90s when this group started, which is really cool. So they've really kind of seen their growth. Um, So that's the Honduras group. And then the Rwanda group, it's actually a family member of 
the farm that lives in the U.S. and he has his own like small importing. Mm. He imports his family's coffee. And so they actually reached out to me through Instagram, which happens a lot, like a lot of, um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then sent me samples and it was incredible coffee. I loved it. And so now that's one of our main partners as well. So, and then we, uh, roast the coffee fresh, like every week, which is also goes through a whole process of figuring out like the roast profile, um, what works best for the coffee, getting the tasty notes. And then, um, in Cafecita's case, people, it's either wholesale or it's e-commerce. People can buy through our online shop or we supply coffee to a lot of cafes, um, cafe buys it they're the ones that are in charge of brewing it and then it goes to the customer amazing all right let's take a quick musical break uh i want to come back i want to talk about your focus on these farms and the farmers how you work with them how they benefit and how coffee's become a symbol for human rights and the change we want to see we have a song from the archives here on snacky tunes on heritage radio network
Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. We're here with Natalie Webb, founder and executive director of Cafe Cita Coffee. Like many people, I think the first time I started to realize that the coffee global trade was maybe not equitable to everyone involved was probably late 80s, early 90s when fair trade really got to be like a mainstream word. And that became enough for a while. But I think then we also realized that fair trade was not enough. So where does fair trade fall short to where the work that you do picks it up and pushes it further? So fair trade is, it was a, a good intention. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But it's very hard to make a global standard, right? It's very Mm -hmm on quality of life, I think. Um, so it's, yeah, it's difficult. It's also difficult to enforce a lot of, mm. it's the same. There's a lot of seals out there, right? Like a lot mm-hmm. of organic. Yeah, it's, exactly. It's watered down and watered down and watered yeah. down. Or like a B corporation now, which you can just buy. Mm. So like, but companies love that. People love seals. So um <laughs> Getting back on track, um, with fair trade, what I at least wanted to do as far as Cafecita's partnerships with our farmers is put them in the driver's seat, let them mm. decide how they're running their business, how they're going to treat their, especially like the co-ops, like the members, the families, because I didn't want this to be a top-down, mm-hmm. this is the way that we think you should be running your, your farm. Like this is, they're the experts. They've been doing this forever. So I really wanted Cafecita to be more of um, a platform and more market access for the work that was already being done. So it was working alongside our producers rather than telling them what to do or giving Mm -hmm. You mentioned in the previous act about these women collective that you work with of farmers, um, how often do you find a women collective of farmers and coffee farmers? Is it prevalent? And where do they sit within the hierarchy of, of coffee farmers? So there are, well, so in the coffee industry, women mm-hmm. 70%, around 70% of the manual labor on farms, wow. but they're doing a lot of the really hard work and they're not in positions of power or decision-making. So depending on the country, it's between five and 20% of farms are owned by women, which is crazy. So you're having basically women doing all the hard work, but not actually like owning the farms, not in positions of power, not getting paid fairly for their work. And so, um, I mean, this is true in so many industries and it really follows the chain all the way up into the U.S. where um, male-owned roaster or male roasters earn, women roasters earn 75 cents to male roasters in the U.S., which is crazy. So I also always want to make a point that this isn't just at origin, like this sure. is everywhere. Oh, pay inequity in America? Wow. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So many, I mean, it's, yeah, it's amazing. But, um, so, so that's the makeup of, I guess, on the farms. Mm-hmm. But I was surprised that there actually are a lot of women-owned 
farms out there that are trying to sell their coffee to the U.S., but because most of the coffee companies in the U.S. are owned by men, there just wasn't a lot of attention put on mm-hmm. it. And so when I started working, finding these farms, working with them, growing the relationships, really once I launched Cafecita, because that is the business model, people got so excited about it. Like within sure. two months, we were in Barista Mag. We were the official roaster for the Regarding Her Food Festival, which is a woman-owned restaurant. Shout Festival. out. Love them. Yeah. So, and that was all within two months of launching. And since then it's just continued on and on, which has been great. So um, I think that there's a lot of excitement around these farms. I think that people really want to support these women, um, the work that they're doing. And it just wasn't having, it didn't have the attention that it deserved before. So much these days of product can come to symbolize people or a movement or an idea. And it seems that Kevisita and the coffee is doing just that. But that symbolism also represents people. Have you gotten to meet these farmers? What's your relationship like? You know, how are they benefiting already from the relationship you've built with them and, and, and highlighting the work they're doing? Yeah. So since I started in 2020, I couldn't travel right away, right? Like Mm -hmm, I mm -hmm. got to these farms. Um, But once it started getting safer, I went to Chiapas and met our producers Mm -hmm. there, which was an incredible trip. And I really do think everyone should start or like should take a trip to, I mean, to coffee farms, but also just in general, like you were saying, like people go, people don't know where their food's coming. They're so detached. Mm -hmm. So supermarket you buy it in plastic and you don't really think about it so I think really seeing how things are grown is such an eye-opening experience um so that it was a great trip and that's what I want to keep doing with Cafecita like I really hope to get to Rwanda to see our producers there and that's actually something like I talk about with the farm and that they really want more and more people to come out and also visit them. So, um, yeah, it's the direction that I'm hoping Cafecita moves in. Let's talk about the coffee a little bit because a lot of time people want to know that what they're waking up to in the morning or what they're going from the afternoon or the crazy coffee drinkers who can somehow have a cup at night. Um, (laughs) Uh They want to know what's, what's in their mug in their cup. So talk to me about the coffee and how you select it um, and how to make sure that you're, not just like offering up coffee with a mission, but it's making a really good product. Yeah. Well, that's, I, I always say I want people to, to support Cafecita and buy the coffee, even if they didn't care about the social impact, right? Mm-hmm. It's obviously mm-hmm. a mission driven company, but even if, even if you don't care about gender equality, like the coffee is so good that you're like, well, I just want that coffee again. Can you imagine? It's like, I don't care about gender equality, <laughs> but I love this coffee. Yeah. Who knows? You know, who knows? Who knows? so um, all the coffee is single origin. It's uh, fair trade certified, organically grown, roasted in small batches. So the quality is really like some of the best coffees that are out there. And um, I work with Cafecitas Roaster to really find the best coffees, but also to perfect their roast profile to make sure that we're offering it and like the best, um, the bringing out the best flavors that we can for each uh, specific coffee. It's amazing. So you've been up and running now for 
since 2020, so three years and change. Yeah. What What have you seen already? Like, what have the changes been? What have the 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 money and the resources and the awareness to this? What have been the real world effect? So, yeah, there's so many answers to that as well. <laughs> it's interesting because the coffee industry overall moved right a lot. A lot of people are doing coffee subscriptions, mm-hmm, so that was mm-hmm. great. Coffee to didn't have the overhead, so able to lean into that. So we have a coffee subscription each month, which is great. Um, a lot of it's interesting because a lot of customers. There's like three branches of customers. There's like the Gen Z, which are actually really into these specialty coffee drinks, especially mm-hmm. like cold brew specialty coffee drinks. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Very into like sweet and Instagrammable and pretty and all these things. Mm-hmm. More like Gen X, I would say, which is into like the black coffee, like a lot more into single origins um, and trying different coffees. So a lot of these coffee subscription services, you'll get like a new coffee each month because people want to try them. And then you have like the old school coffee drinkers, which are the ones that like the darker roast, that like mm-hmm. know what they like and they drink the same coffee every day. So it's interesting to see each one of those, how they're developing, especially the Gen Z. Um, so yeah, seeing the change in that, seeing the growth of cold brew is really popular as well. Um, and then seeing generally across all industries, customers and clients that want to support companies that align with their values mm-hmm. it's been really nice. So a lot of people, like I was saying, get really excited about Cafecita and um, reach out to me and like want to help, want to volunteer, want to do all these things. So it's it's just been really nice. Like, I hope that continues for the world in every industry. And what about the farmers themselves and the collectives? How have they changed? What are the benefits they've seen over the last few years? Well, providing more market access is great for them because – right? Like they're able to sell more of their product. They're getting, it's twofold. They're getting more income, right? Which studies have shown that women, when you support a woman, like you're not just supporting her, like she gives a lot of that money to her family and her community. So it's really Mm -hmm. a lot of waves, I would say, which is really nice. Um, And then it's also bringing kind of the education to a lot of customers in the U.S. about the gender inequality that's happening, um, which I think is really great. So I've seen more coffee roasters advertise that they're that they're offering a coffee from a women-owned farm. I've seen that pop up a lot more. When when Cafecita launched, we were the only roaster that only that offered women-owned coffee like exclusively. Um, and now I see there aren't there aren't companies that are exclusive like Cafecita, but ones that are like happy to kind of market the fact that they're sure. women-owned coffee or women-owned sure. farm coffee from women-owned farms. So you have the cafe opening in Glasgow Park. Yes. What's up next? Uh, talk to me a little bit about the cafe and what people can expect and the next, you know, I mean, look, holidays, I can't believe it, right around the corners. So I imagine some gifting for uh, the winter yeah. park. Yeah, so um, for LA, the the it's going to be a coffee trailer, and it's actually going to be solar powered. In sure. amazing, yeah, and it's in the courtyard of Black Forest Bakery. If people mm-hmm. know them, they're right now based in Los Feliz, but the, they're a truck, and they're actually this is going to be their first location as well. So we're going to share this beautiful courtyard space. We're putting in plants. We're having local artists do murals. Like it's going to be 
beautiful. So super excited about that. So I hope everyone comes and visits. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, yeah, as far as the holidays, Cafecita also does a lot of corporate gifting. So we're on a lot of uh, platforms for um, B2B companies. So they, you know, as soon as it became, it turned July, like they're on it. (laughs) Like, what are we offering for the holidays? Because they're getting ready for um, their customers as well. So all that to say is uh, with Cafecita, if you uh, if any of the listeners have uh, holiday like gifts that they need to send out, if it's from company to company or to clients, like Cafecita not just offers like gift boxes and gift sets and things like that, but we also have gift notes that we we can include in all the um, orders, which is great. So we've had a lot of people also, especially in LA, like a lot of film crews, once they're done filming, mm. send coffee as gifts to the whole crew, which is really nice. Um things like that so it's good yeah and if you're struggling with back to school back to work post-summer yeah and you need a little kick the coffee is fantastic well natalie i can't thank you enough congratulations on everything if people want to check you out on the web and order or just follow along on social where can they go how can they get involved so the website is cafecitacoffee.com and then the socials are also just cafecita coffee and that's spelled C-A-F-E-C-I-T-A coffee. Amazing. Well, thank you so much. And thank you to Chris for putting us in touch. <laughs> we have a song from the archives and then a live performance here on Snacky Tunes on Heritage Radio Network.
This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. There's a reason when you think of Wisconsin, you think cheese. Cheese is a huge part of Wisconsin's history and future. In Wisconsin, the state of cheese, the tradition of cheesemaking excellence began 180 years ago, before Wisconsin was recognized as a state. Immigrants traveled to settle in this lush green hills of Wisconsin, bringing their cheesemaking traditions with them. These storied skills combined with the freshest milk available created a cheesemaking culture that is uniquely Wisconsin. Wisconsin's 1,200 cheesemakers, many of whom are third and fourth generation, continue to pass on old world traditions while adopting modern innovations in cheesemaking craftsmanship. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. We have Ben Cherkin live in studio. How's it going? Good. Good to see you. I'm Ian White. I'm the, <laughs> I'm the hired gun. Oh, hey, hired gun. Hi. Bass player. <laughs> Bass player. Bass and guitar. Bass and guitar. Yeah. yeah. Ian, you were raised as a jazz guitarist. Yes. Ben. ben. Both of us. <laughs> Actually, though. Both of us, yeah. Let me start that we used to- I'll, I'll do that again. <laughs> Sorry, Ben, you were raised as a jazz guitarist. Yeah. What is it that... In a way. In a way. Well, in what way? And also, how does that differ from just regular guitar? And why did you lean that way as a young kid? So, in high school, we actually played in the jazz band together. We went to high school together. Um, and I would say, you know, it was mostly structured as you, you're reading music, you're soloing. It's a little more freeform. Um... But at the same time, there's there's more like music theory applied to it, um, which I'm not like the biggest fan of. I I would honestly consider Ian like a way better guitarist than I am. I'm not trying to yeah, like flatter. I, I'd him agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, it's just like f- different from the music I'm making now. I still apply like sort of the same chord structures and uh, a lot of like major sevens and minor sevens that like find its way into my music now because of it how does it get brought in or where do you think that it elevates your current music to something that's like so theoretical i mean dance i don't say it's you're making dance music but it's very four to the floor very you know straightforward how does the jazz weave its way into the composition yeah i think it's um it's a good question um really the structure of jazz tunes in a way are not like a pop structure where you have like verse chorus verse chorus and I think that has really like influenced my music in a way where I'm I'm not trying to structure it like a pop song Um, I'll sort of weave into like new sections after one after another and not really think about okay this needs to be a bridge and then a chorus is sort of like melody it becomes important and that's like one of the most important parts and sort of vying veering away from any sort of like normal structure in that way, that mindset. Yeah. And you were born and raised in LA. Yeah. And you did, a, you DJ'd a bunch of parties, house parties, yeah, clubs. Yeah. That's how I started. Where, <laughs> where would you DJ and how would you get in? Um, so I, I used to DJ at the Roxy. Um, there's like this club on top called On the Rocks. So I would do that. I had to play like seven or eight with a friend, seven or eight shows with a friend there. Um, it was like a, a stressful situation getting in every time because I wasn't 21 yet. So. Did, did they know that? 
Yeah, they they did, but they would still card me, and I couldn't bring friends through, really. Like, there was one time when I was trying to bring my friend to come see me DJ, and they were like, what year did you graduate high school? And she, like, paused for maybe 30 seconds, and I was like, wasn't it uh, 2012? And they were like, oh, okay, you can come in. Like, it was fine. But it's, it's like always, you have to deal with that when but, you're younger. <laughs> but even as, even as like a young performer, it's like, I'm the DJ, wouldn't you just show up early and just do that, or you just always get carded all right, the time? Right, no, they always like try to card you. I've had situations where I've played a show, and I'm of age now, but we were in San Francisco like two years ago, and they wouldn't let me into the crowd. They were just, they had like a little section for, for us to hang out in. And so you then, played, and, and then they're like, you can't go past yeah. this area. And I had friends there, too, who were like in the, in the show. Just like, <laughs> so would you like stand by the barrier and just kind of like chat? Yeah, I was like, there? hey, what's up? Like, I felt kind of weird about it, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> and what type of music would you play, and, and how did that evolve from your jazz guitar training into the music that you're making now? Yeah, so, I mean, I played jazz in high school. I also played a lot of rock, um, so a lot of like the pentatonic minor pentatonic scales that I was practicing find their way into my music. Like, when I solo on my music live, like, I'm usually playing, like, pentatonic stuff because that's what I remember. I'm not really taking guitar lessons now. Uh, I've been getting more into, like, synths and, like, evolving that side of me more. Um, I even, like, recently stopped playing guitar, like, for the well, new music I'm making. Well, you have like, Ian. That's yeah, well, I have Ian. Yeah, that's my purpose. <laughs> <laughs> what would Ian do if you were also playing guitar? If I if I wasn't playing guitar, no, if you were playing guitar, what would Ian be doing? Ian would just be dancing, oh, okay. like naked, probably. Yeah. Maybe I do that already. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> Usually like to rehearse naked. I would say. Yeah. Does it free up the creativity? <laughs> yeah, free freedom of body, freedom of mind, freedom of yeah, place and time. Yeah, that's kind of a rhyme. Definitely. We also like live stream, <laughs> so we have like a cam show, and you can like pay. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's how you fund the can, project. Is it okay if we plug that? Or is yeah, it like of course. A little inappropriate? Anyone can plug anything. Okay, check activities. out net. It's $5 for a sub and like a lot of perks. Can you add on the EP? Yeah, yeah. def. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the classic upsell. Yeah. Sometimes we're not upsell. even playing. Yeah, exactly. We're just playing our music while we dance. We're entrepreneurs. Yeah, very much so. Can we hear a song? Yeah. yeah. What, are gonna, what are you going to play for us first? Uh, we're going to play The Roman Call. Which is a single off of the last EP. So great. Here well, we go live on Snacky Tunes. <clears throat> Thank you. 
You talk about how L.A. or you used L.A. to cultivate your identity and ideology. How did that city play into the music you make now? Yeah, so, I mean, L.A. is a super diverse city, as, like, a lot of people know. Um, I was really into the lo-fi hip-hop scene that was kind of going on there. Um, a lot of, like, beat makers really influenced me. Guys like Shlomo, um, the low-end theory scene out there. Uh, Daddy Kev, Alpha Pup, but then on the other hand, you have, yeah, you have like We Did It, which is like more electronic, and then uh, there's just so much music uh, out in LA. I think for me, it, it was a place to really find what I enjoyed listening to and actually meet people who were in the scene doing different things. Yeah. And what was it that shaped your? How did it begin to shape the the dance music love and also your identity, which is really interesting. Right. Um, I would say just a lot of these guys and girls making music uh, out there were really focused on, like, how they looked in a way, I would say, and kind of their their vibe, um, whether, like, for example, We Did It, um, which is a big influence of mine, their whole idea of we're not just a music label, we're also, like, a fashion uh, line and we're also making like hip hop but it's not limited to th- just that uh, you can kind of do whatever you want and so in that kind of way it was a way for me to be like I don't have to stick to one thing as a musician like okay I can make a record that sounds a little more bubbly and light and like happy and then the next thing I do can be like sad and like the opposite and uh, it allowed me to kind of get out of that mindset that I have to keep doing the same thing in order to like maintain a, a good where crowd. Do you th- or where do you think that mindset came from? Those constraints or those personal set constraints? Right. Um, maybe like <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. That's a that's an interesting question. I think that something that like pushes me or like was holding me back, but at the same time pushing me was like my my mom, who would be like okay, I like the electronic stuff that you're doing, but, like, play guitar more and, like, sing and do this. So in that way, I I started playing guitar and, like, singing more. And at the same time, it didn't, like, allow me to, like, make... I wasn't making decisions for myself. Um, So now I'm kind of opening up a little bit more, I guess. What brought you to Brooklyn? School. Yeah, I'm I'm at NYU right now. Um, So... And I was living in Manhattan. Now I'm in Brooklyn because I'm trying to be a real, like, Brooklyn night. It was always a dream of mine to, like, live in Brooklyn. You know what I mean? It has that kind of, like, aura. <laughs> How are you balancing school and doing the music full time? Yeah, it's hard. It's really hard. I'm, like, I have to do, like, homework tonight. <laughs> so, it's not easy. I do not envy ever going back. No, I still have no. dream. I haven't been in college in, like, 13 years. Right. And I still have nightmares about not being ready for a test. And I was like, I've been in school in years. Right. It sticks yeah. with you. Yeah, luckily, I'm, I'm, I'm studying music, so I don't have that many tests. It's more production stuff. It's stuff I like doing. Um, so I'm, I'm doing mostly music, some, like, philosophy. And what, what is homework in music education? What is just making music? <laughs> You're like, I wrote my new EP. Yeah, yeah. Or it'll be, like, write an EP, and I'm like, I wrote an EP. So I don't know. You're like, can I, can I submit this? Can I submit this? Right. And they're like, well, no, you should do something for this class. And I'm like, okay. Okay. I'll, I'll, um, yeah. It's sure, uh, sure, all remixes, sure. and they're just actually demos. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Can we hear another song? Yeah. So. What are you going to play for us? Uh, Lightning by the Sea.
when I first reached out to you last year, you were living in Berlin. This is true. What took you out there, and what were you uh, doing out there? Yeah, so I was studying abroad there um, and partying abroad there. I, I can imagine. clubbing abroad. Take, take us through. Where did you go? Taking it in. Oh, my gosh. I tried to go to as many different places as I could. I mean... I went to, like, the main place, like, Berkine and, like... Classic. Tresor. So, like, saw a lot of techno. I, I'm really into techno. I've actually been DJing some techno since I've been out here under different names. What's the name? Pseudonyms. DJ Teen Dad. DJ Teen Dad? Teen Dad or uh, DJ 16 and Pregnant. So if you ever see those names, no, you know it's me. You know. <laughs> <laughs> what education did you get from being out in Berlin? Yeah, so there's a lot of, like, experiential education. Um, just, like, pushing my limits, uh, challenging myself. Can I do also, 72 hours in Panorama Bar? Yeah, I don't know. You? Can I? I, I, I couldn't, <laughs> but that's just me. I love the way my voice sounds on this mic, by the way. It's really it's soothing. I didn't know, like, um, Molly was a form of education. <laughs> but I le- Ben yeah. came back and told me, so. Spiritual. I gotta try it. Yeah, you do. <laughs> but, um, no, I mean, I was taking some, like, great music classes out there actually i was learning a lot about like analog synthesis um also like more experimental techniques of recording like using a lot of like field recorded sounds and doing a lot more with electronic music than what i'm used to in school um learned about bitcoin i had a class on like bitcoin and like cryptocurrency and ai so a lot of future like what what the future holds um just something that i'm really interested in and which is, that's kind of the reason I, like, dropped my guitar. I was like, I'm in Berlin. Like, no one's playing guitar here. Like, I'm just going to make electronic sounds and, like, stuff that, like, hurts my ears. Like, that's fun. <laughs> After it was all said and done, did you see a shift in the music that you were making? Or, or what were some of the jumps that you felt in the creative process? Totally. I mean, I started using more since, first of all. Like, I've been messing around with the Moog Mother a lot. Expensive habit. Oh, very. I, I don't know if I'm ready to get into analog synthesis because I know I'm going to have to drop at least five grand to really like start doing it. Um, but I would love to. It's so cool. So like it, it works your brain in a different way than I think using a computer does or using like playing an instrument. It's totally like it's more like a, like I want to say like electrical engineering in a way. Do you feel that sense. do you feel your education upbringing in jazz theory plays into the analog synths in the way that it you can write music on it? Honestly, not really. Not, because it's like, if you're using something like a Moog Mother, it's like one note, right? That you're like sequencing a bunch. Um, so at that point, you're kind of just using your ears to like adjust resonance and like frequencies. And uh, it's less, for me, theoretical and more like intuitive, trusting myself. So between synth education, going to class, you have a show this weekend elsewhere. Yes. Where? Who are you playing with? When are you playing? Yeah, I'm playing... So the show starts at 8, goes to like 11. Um, playing with this band, Blood Culture. It's a really cool band out here. And uh, this really cool producer, Jackie Mendoza. Um, so it should be a great show. I actually just played with her out in L.A., and we might start playing a few more shows together out here. And they let you run right through the front door. 21... Show me your ID. Yeah, I'm fine now. No barriers. <laughs> Have a drink. Zero barriers. I mean, yeah, I've been drinking a lot. Like, it's good. It's good. I'm sure, like, some people who are listening to this are like, 
who the fuck is this, what, this kid? We were, He's I mean, we were all <laughs> we were all twenty one and in Berlin once. Exactly. Yeah. Well, most of us. I hope. I so. mean, I'm twenty. I've never <laughs> been to Berlin, so. Okay. Well, you, you have time. That. You have time. time. You yeah. Have time. True. True. It's what, an exodus. So you have to take it. You have to. You, you have to put in the. Yeah. You have to put in the time there. That's exactly. true. I want to make sure we get time for one more song. Mm-hmm. Where can people find you? Get your EP. Find out about shows. Yeah. I mean, if you use SoundCloud, go to SoundCloud. Go by Beshkin. Um, or Spotify. Both are really good places to find music nowadays. I don't really use Bandcamp that much, but you can find my music on Bandcamp. If you want to pay for it, that'd be cool. But I don't really care that much. Bandcamp has been really good to artists. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's true. They haven't been like super good to me. Oh. But in general, you're right. <laughs> in general, right. <laughs> well, I want to thank uh, Billy and Ariel coming on and Ben for and Ian for coming by. Um, thanks for listening. We will be back with the all-new episode of Snacky Tunes next week. What are you going to take us out with? I'm going to take you out with a song called Secrets off my first EP. So, yeah. Secrets. Don't ruin the secret. Thanks for listening. Here we go. Thank mm-hmm. you.
talk about food. We talk about music with musical dudes. Finger on the pulse, snacky tunes. Snacky tunes is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.